first of a new occasional series of Research Bites podcasts, looking very briefly at a cross-section of research projects in an academic institution. Today's selection is from Goldsmiths University of London. Goldsmiths is the alma mater of most of the YBAs, you know, the young British artists. Not so young now, of course. Damien Hirst, Mark Wallinger, Julian Waring, Sam Taylor-Witt. It has a long history of cultural study, artistic expression and iconoclism. So it's not surprising to find academics in every department concerned about creativity. That's why our first research bite for this podcast is from Professor Joydeep Bhattacharya from the psychology department, who's just about to start a research project on the neuroscience of creativity. By the way, I do apologise for the sound quality. When I recorded these interviews, they weren't for broadcast, but we thought they were so interesting that you'd like to hear them anyway. Here's Professor Joydeep Bhattacharya. Creativity is the driving force behind every decision, every actions, every progress, or uh, almost of human civilizations. But uh, the neuroscientific understanding of creativity is very limited. So we have a recent project funded by European Union, and where at Goldsmiths we are very much interested to improve our understanding. And this is a truly multidisciplinary approach uh, by bridging different disciplines from psychology just with an aim to have a better standardized measure of creativity then applying neuroscientific techniques in order to identify how creativity is, is processed in the brain, how they are represented in the brain, and then finally to use the advanced computer technologies to monitor the creative brain in action with the final aim of devising some kind of stimulation paradigm in order to enhance creativity. A lot of us will be familiar with in ordinary conversations with left brain, right brain activity, but you're going to go much further than this. That is right. I mean, you have a lot of this kind of, we call Western cultural model of creativity, of this kind of phrase, the left brain, right brain, or, or you need to be crazy to be creative. But these are, in terms of scientific content, more of a myth than, than actual reality. So naturally, in this particular project, we are more interested in going into separating myths from the facts. And then we are primarily interested in the how this creativity can be measured can be standardized, can be monitored in the real time, and with the hope if it can be improved. So finally. give us a quick description of what that research will look like. Is it going to be sort of lots of artists painting paintings with lots of nodes all over their heads? Uh, yes and no, because this is actually, and again, another misconception to, to correlate creativity with the performing arts. Actually, every human individual is creative. The way that everyone, whenever they speak, whenever they act, it is a creative act. So, so what we primarily try to achieve for us to understand this everyday creativity, that can be studied in the lab. And at the same time, we would like to see how this knowledge that you gain in the lab can be applied in the broader sense of creativity, such as musicians, artists. And actually, in fact, in the project, we are having a strong collaborations with the performing artists, as well as strong collaborations with industries where creativity is of utmost importance. So consider advertising industries, because one of, one of our partners is a big advertising company. So, so we, we want to have this kind of balance between everyday creativity and at the same time the big creativity as accepted by the society. Next up is the composer Jeremy Patron Jones from Goldsmiths Music Department, who's involved in practice research on a project called Endings. Uh, Endings is a musical project which I developed a couple of years, started developing a couple of years ago um, when as a composer teaching at Goldsmiths I'm thinking about 
different ways of presenting you in maybe a more theatrical context, but also in uh, working with other uh, musicians, composers, in the creative devising process, and that's what I'm focusing on. The particular focus of endings is uh, settings of ends of books, ends of works of literature. Which one did you um, chose? Well, it started by somebody asking me uh, on the occasion of their wedding to, to set the end of James Joyce's Ulysses, the Molly Bloom soliloquy, for their wedding feast. And I did that some years ago. Um, another thing which triggered it was uh, I was needing to write a nocturne uh, for the BBC and I was looking at descriptions of night for it. And I found that the end of Jack Kerouac's On the Road was rather wonderful, beautiful description of night falling across America. And um, I didn't use that for the nocturne, but much later I came back to it. So here a theme was starting to develop of setting the ends of books, and that, uh, that became the focus. There are vocal settings, so that uh, there are singers singing these words. Um, the, the, the slightly more research element, I suppose, is then uh, taking this pre-composed music I've developed and composed and written for acoustic instruments, and then working on a different way, a novel way of presenting it by having electronic layering of sound on top of the acoustic music and having electronic interludes between the pieces to create a seamless whole. Computers and creativity come together in Dr. Kate Devlin's research. She's not only a computer expert, but also an archaeologist seeking to understand the past better. It's actually really useful for archaeologists to get an idea of what their excavating would have looked like. I mean, we can say that um, although it's illustrative, although we can show it as an example, we can also predict a certain amount of um, accuracy by simulating how the light moves in the environment. So we're not just making pictures, we're actually showing how people might have perceived things. And we can see changes as well in how they perceive things. What do you think is the, the significance of your work? Well, it, it leads to new insights. For example, um, well, some work we did early, early on was um, at a rock shelter in France at Catalogue. And there's a carving there of a horse. It's an incomplete carving. It's just really the top half of the horse. And we did a laser scan of that, which is a bit like a digital crayon rubbing. And we had that 3D model, um, we lit it using, we, we put in some virtual lights um, that would have been the type of light used at the time, like torches, so dynamic flame, uh, move, a lot of movement and shadows. And when we looked at that, 
because the carving was incomplete and the legs were sort of incomplete, it actually looked under the flickering light as if the horse was moving. So we wonder, does that mean that people were creating prehistoric animations? A colleague of Kate Devlin's in the Department of Computing is Dan McQuillan, lecturer in creative and social computing and human rights activist who's been involved in establishing crypto parties where people share computer skills particularly aimed at staying out of the way of the NSA. And when I spoke to him, he was getting ready for the first crypto festival. Now we all know that um, the most paranoid fantasies are actually true. And this means all the details of everybody's lives are being recorded in a way that can literally later be used against you, depending on what filters are then later decided on, you know, about which kind of thoughts and actions are acceptable. So this is a, a, a major issue for everybody. So the practical te techniques become essential. Um, so how can I protect myself? Encrypting your email so that your conversations are actually readable by you and the person you intended and not in between. Uh, How difficult is that to do? That's actually the fiddliest one, uh, simply because you both need to generate keys which unlock the emails. And the other things that we teach, which is anonymous browsing uh, through a tool called Tor, and that you can learn how to do that in five minutes. And encrypting the stuff on your hard disk, which is useful for daily life. If you lose your laptop or it's stolen, you know, and you may have your um, personal budget details on there, and it's just a and then there's another one about, the fourth one is just um, chatting with other people online and having that chat stay between the two of you. Again, it's slightly fiddlier, but no more than 15 minutes to set it up and use it. So, and the great thing about these tools is they're available to everybody. If I go underground, as it were, mm -hmm. and take myself off the map, mm. won't the intelligence agencies start to get suspicious? One of the revelations from Snowden is the fact that they are aware when people are using something like email encryption because they can see that it's encrypted. But actually, if there's a reassurance, the reassurance is that maths works, funnily enough. That's the one thing the NSA has kind of proven that maths works, that if the cryptography is done properly and, and you're sensible about the way you apply it, it, it does make you anonymous and keep your, your conversations to yourself. So um, yeah, to some extent, uh, they will, there will be a note saying that this is encrypted, but then it's not part of this giant machine which is busy sifting through everyone else's conversations and deciding who or what is suspicious at any time. And that's the real, well, one of the big problems with this stuff is it's going to be increasingly used in predictive algorithms. Are you somebody who should be let on a flight? Are you somebody who should be given a job? We've just learned that Goldsmith's Computer Wizzies have won a major government grant for PhD students to take forward the digital games industry in the UK. Now, another important department at Goldsmith's is the education department. Pod Academy has had other pieces about their groundbreaking research, but this time I spoke to Claire Kelly, who heads up the BA in Education, Culture and Society, about her work on children's literacy. Becoming literate, learning to read, is, is a human activity. It's not something that stops when children leave school at 3.30. It's going on all the time. So at Goldsmiths, what we're doing is finding out more about what happens at home and how that can link with uh, learning to read at school. What we found from our research is that um, literacy happens in all homes and it, it goes on in many, many different ways. So for instance, we know that some children, when they leave school, they go to a community school that's run by parents, volunteers, teachers, and they're often learning about their heritage, culture and language, so they're becoming biliterate in effect. 
It might be for religious reasons, they're learning to read Arabic, to recite the Quran. We know from uh, other research that children are spending quite a lot of time, even young children, on the internet, playing computer games, so there's a lot of reading off the screen. And then there are other the, um, ways of becoming literate that are acknowledged generally, which are things like going to the library, having a bedtime story, but it's only those last things that are recognised in school. So we know that there's a hidden world out there of children who are learning to read in many different ways, but it's not acknowledged. So what difference would it make if it were acknowledged? What do you want to see teachers do? Well, I think for some children, they have to learn to leave what they know at the door when they come into school, and others bring with them, because uh, teachers, because it's part of teachers' own experience, probably. Uh, to have gone to the library or had a bedtime story, but not to have gone to a community school or to be uh, using the internet at age six. So if you see becoming literate as, a, as a, a human activity that's for the whole child, then it's building bridges for those children between that experience at home and at school. My last port of call in Goldsmiths was with Dr Joe Lloyd, lecturer in occupational psychology who is currently working on policies and practices for transgender people in the workplace. For the individuals concerned, I think there are still a lot of hurdles going on for them within their work environment. I think um, we can do much more both to help them cope and be more resilient to the challenges that they face every day from their co-workers, from the very structures of their organisations. What sorts of challenges? Well, for example, I guess, you know, something that you and I would really take for granted, using your Christian name or being referred to by your Christian name. But if you have, you know, if you do not perceive yourself to be in the body that you, you were born in, then you may not feel comfortable with that name. Um, and you may wish other people to call you something else, but there may be tensions within the work environment about whether they sh will be willing to do that or not. Presumably, people going through this process of changing their gender mm will need the confidence and the support of their work colleagues. So how can a company actually help that process? I think there are many ways, but I think ultimately management need to be very much on board with what is going on. They need to be very well informed. They need training themselves to understand the issues so that that will naturally flow down from them. Um, so senior management need to be heavily involved and they need to know how to support their employees to support these individuals but they also need to know how to support the employee in question as well so some degree of cope training and coaching training in or sensitivities around the issue i think they need to be ready for if those situations do occur are there policies that you would advise them having in place diversity awareness policies around fair treatment in terms of you know selection promotion these individuals must be treated fairly and equally to everybody else. Um, fair environment, fair work environment policies about how these individuals are treated. So that was our first Research Bites podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If your college or university would like to do something similar, just write to thepod at podacademy.